0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In today's episode, we hear the music from Hook, made in 1991. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everybody. We have arrived at Hook, the 1991 fantasy film that had all the makings of a major blockbuster and an instant classic, but instead turned into a bit of a headache for nearly everyone involved. Of all the films that John Williams has been involved in since he began composing film scores, the journey to bring Hook to the screen is probably the longest one yet, though in a couple of years... Schindler's List will officially become the project that took the longest for Spielberg or any of his directors to get to the screen. Before I get into the history of Hook and how John Williams was part of it from nearly the beginning, I want to introduce my co-host for the show. He's been listening since the very beginning, and it's my distinct honor and pleasure to have Derek Scholl here. Derek, it's great to have you here today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. I've been listening since your first episode And I'm both thankful for all the work you've put into this and for the chance to contribute.
0: So let's give the listeners the opportunity to know a bit about yourself.
1: Well, I'm from Boston, currently living in Cambridge, and I've been a poker pro just about my entire adult life. But I have no formal connection to the music world beyond a sort of disbelief that any one person could be responsible for John Williams' catalog. I grew up listening to his scores in the classics like Home Alone, Jurassic Park, and obviously Hook without even knowing the music shared a single source. It wasn't until somewhere in high school that I came across the name John Williams and a list of the movies he'd scored. That was really the end of a childhood of taking the music of movies for granted.
0: So in your rankings of the best John Williams scores, where do you put Hook? I can't say there's any other I like more than this one
1: which is probably because one of the few things John, Stephen, and I have in common is at least a little bit of a Peter Pan complex. And obviously not in the way of an inability to grow up, we've all managed our adult lives just fine, but more in just an ability to not let the kids inside us completely disappear over time. Stephen couldn't have directed this kid's movie so well without it, John couldn't have captured the emotion of the story so perfectly without it, And without it, I highly doubt this would be my single favorite John
0: Williams score. Interesting. So I'm going to be interested to hear how you describe this music as we go along. And a lot of the discussion about the film before its premiere was centered around the fact that only Spielberg was adequately equipped to deal with a live-action Peter Pan movie, given his own Peter Pan complex. He said in an interview, quote, I've always felt that I was like the boy who wouldn't grow up. In the sense that I have a real affinity for my childhood and I can relate to children through my memories as a child, I am Peter Pan. End quote. And since I started this podcast, I have encountered a lot of people who count Hook as one of their favorite Spielberg films and one of the best John Williams scores. So you're not alone, Derek. I can't say that I agree with them though there are some wonderfully charming moments that make me give the score a thumbs up for the effort. As for the film, it's a bit sloppy in so many places, especially the big finale.
1: Well, that's okay, because musical preference is one of the purest examples of subjectivity anyway. We can have different
0: favorites without either of us being objectively wrong about it. But I do see why you have such a strong connection to this film and the score as well.
1: The backstory of Hook goes back to my birth year of 1985 when Spielberg was looking for his next project after having directed The Color Purple. Everyone around him wanted him to work on another movie geared towards adults, and the then-finished screenplay, Schindler's List, was the logical choice. But Spielberg didn't feel ready to take on the story about the Holocaust, so he we went with a Peter Pan
0: story he had been considering directing since he finished E.T. And the weird thing about those early discussions about the movie was not that Spielberg thought about making it into a musical, but that he wanted Michael Jackson, of all people, to play a much older Peter Pan, though still very much telling the same story as before. I'm not sure what brought the King of Pop to mind for this role, especially since Jackson had only been in one movie, playing the Scarecrow in The Wiz, back in 1978. Well, maybe Quincy Jones was a producer on The Color Purple, and because Jones was Jackson's main producer at the time, Spielberg might have mentioned the project to Jones, who subsequently suggested Michael Jackson. And oddly enough, Michael Jackson hadn't yet bought the Neverland Ranch. That would happen three years later... After Jackson dropped out due to disagreements Yeah, I
1: read somewhere that Jackson lost interest because he would have been playing a pan who had already grown up After seeing only the final cut. It's hard to imagine anyone other than Robin Williams as Peter He made the experience of a middle-aged lawyer eventually realizing he was the real Peter Pan as believable as I could possibly imagine Spielberg, on the other hand, said he didn't even want to do Hook at the time because he had just had his first child and didn't want to be away from him for a year while filming Hook in London. So he stayed at home taking care of his baby Max and started planning to direct Empire of the Sun, which
0: came out in 1987. And in those early stages, Spielberg thought the story was ripe for an original musical. He loved the Disney animated version of the Peter Pan story, which was also a musical, and was ready to bring on John Williams to write the song score. From what I could tell, Williams put aside some time in 1985 to put some melodies to paper, but after Spielberg said no to doing the movie, Williams also moved on to do Space Camp. I don't think Williams actually wrote anything official at that point. And even though Spielberg left the project, the film itself remained in pre-production with Nick Castle signing on as director in 1989. Talk about a major step down in talent level. Castle's best film to date was The Last Starfighter, which I think 10 people saw in 1984. In that time, the story changed from a new retelling of the classic Peter Pan story to a sequel in which Peter grew up and started a family. That sparked a new interest from Spielberg, who kind of pushed Castle out and returned to the project for good. And though the story changed, Spielberg's idea about making it a musical did not. I guess he always had dreams of making a big Hollywood musical, though that genre was not very popular with moviegoers in the 1980s. But I think seeing the success of The Little Mermaid made Spielberg believe he could also revitalize the Hollywood musical. And with the greatest living film composer by his side, what could go wrong? And I get the impression that Williams was also gung-ho about writing a musical, even though he didn't have much success with songwriting or with creating a musical. Remember that his only try at writing a musical was the stage production of Thomas and the King in 1975, which quickly flopped. Just before working on Home Alone, Williams had sketched out some melodies based on ideas Spielberg brought to him. Songs had to be written and recorded before filming started, as all movie musicals do. So Williams called his friend Leslie Brickus to provide lyrics to some of the tunes Williams already wrote. The last movie musical Brickus worked on was Victor Victoria back in 1982, which earned him an Academy Award. Brickus had just finished work on a stage musical version of The Sherlock's Holmes Story, a production that played off and on in London from 1988 to 1989. So just before Christmas 1990, just after finishing work on Home Alone, Williams and Brickus turned in eight songs to Spielberg. Now I don't know what turned off Spielberg to the idea of a musical, but he had hired actors who had some sort of musical training, not all of them, but some. And that would be important to sell the musical premise. But before filming started in February 1991, the musical idea was scrapped and Spielberg set off to film A Straight Story. Spielberg was so enamored with two of the songs, though, that he did decide to leave those in the film. Now, between you and me, I would have loved to hear Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams sing. And it would have been, well, interesting to say the least to hear what songs Williams and Brickas wrote for them. Hoffman, interestingly, had been attached to the film when Nick Castle was involved, and it was nice to see him stick to it after Spielberg was on board and after it was changed to a musical. As for Williams, we would get to hear him sing the following year in Aladdin, so we still get to hear him sing sometime in the movie.
1: And we're lucky that Williams didn't throw out all the sheets from the musical. Even though six of the songs were dropped from the film, Williams didn't want those melodies to go to waste, and he created thematic material from them for the underscore. There was a song for the Pirates that became the main theme for Captain Hook, a nice flute-based theme for Peter and his lost childhood, and also
0: music for when Peter finally remembers how to fly. Yeah, he kept all of that music, and the result is a non-stop score in the film. The movie runs 2 hours and 20 minutes, and there is definitely more than 2 hours of music included. As I talked about in the episode for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the constant use of music often keeps us from really appreciating the score when it's there. Having some scenes without music helps us get excited about the music when it returns.
1: Yep, and for as many times as I've seen this movie, it wasn't until the couple times I rewatched it for this podcast that I realized just how nonstop the music is. So much of it fits so naturally into the background that it doesn't necessarily get noticed without trying.
0: And I think, Derek, there's something else behind that idea of putting music into almost every minute of the movie. Many years after the film's release, Spielberg said in an interview with Empire Magazine, quote, I felt like a fish out of water making Hook. I didn't have the confidence in the script. I had confidence in the first act, and I had confidence in the epilogue. I didn't have confidence in the body of it. I didn't quite know what I was doing, and I tried to paint over my insecurity with production value. The more insecure I felt about it, the bigger and more colorful the sets became. Now, that's the end of that quote, and I think this spilled over to Spielberg's collaboration with Williams on the score. Spielberg's lack of confidence in making this film caused him to drop the musical idea, I think, And then as he watched the first edits, he felt the music needed to help hide some of the plot and acting issues. That's just one reason why I think there's barely a moment in the film for the score to take a rest. John Williams is trying to paint over some of the flaws. So let's not keep listeners waiting any longer. It's time to discuss the score. We're not going to discuss every single moment because we'd be here for many hours, but if we are to find any redemption in the score, it's important to understand the development of thematic material and how Williams was able to bring out the emotion in some of the key scenes. So let's start by discussing the two songs that stayed in the film. One of them opens the film as we see Peter's daughter Maggie playing Wendy in a stage version of Peter Pan. It starts with a nice melody on piano that doesn't really get any major development in the underscore followed by the actual song performed by children in the play within a movie called We Don't Want to Grow Up.
1: and that piano intro is just perfect John Williams. The other song that remains in the film is When You're Alone. It's sung by Maggie in Neverland the first night after she's kidnapped by Hook. It's a very different song from We Don't Want to Grow Up, but I can see why Spielberg wanted to make sure it saw the light of day even after the musical plans were scrapped. The melody by Williams and the lyrics by Brickus would have taken quite a bit of effort and came out just too well to let it get shelved. Maybe it was a bit of a favor
0: from Spielberg to Williams, too. Who knows? Yeah, that's a possibility. It's the one song that Williams and Bricus wrote that could still make sense in the confines of a non-musical film. The construction of When You're Alone has some similarities to Somewhere in My Memory from Home Alone, which is not surprising. Both deal with lonely children, and both were written about the same time.
1: Yeah, I definitely hear the same similarity between when you're allowed and somewhere in my memory, especially because of the use of a celeste.
0: My favorite part of the when you're alone scene in Hook is one of the Lost Boys. Uh, After he blows out his lantern, he yells, good night, Neverland. I just absolutely love that. I kind of do that sometimes myself. So there is a main theme that runs through the film score, and it's designed for Peter's lost childhood since most uses of it come when Peter's younger life is mentioned. We first hear it as we see the elderly Wendy at the top of the stairs when Peter and his family arrive in London. Maggie Smith, who is one of the greatest casting choices for this film, descends the staircase and says the classic phrase, Hello, boy, followed by a lovely flute melody. At this point, Wendy tells the children there is no growing up allowed in the house, and the main theme gets a little fuller with some string accompaniment. There's a scene in the film when the children are tucked into bed before the adults go to an event for Wendy. I have a feeling the When You're Alone song was going to be introduced here when the film was supposed to be a musical, sung by Moira as a lullaby to her children. To emphasize that point, Williams puts the When You're Alone into the underscore as Peter and Moira say goodnight followed by the main theme.
1: I think you're probably right about when you're alone, making sense to have been sung in the bedtime part of the original musical, which makes the timing of it in the movie seem pretty out of place by comparison.
0: Yes, there should have been a line in there after the song is sung when Jack or Maggie or Peter says something about this song was a bedtime melody for the children. The music for the kidnapping
1: scenes is where the magic of the score really starts for me. Williams introduces the hook motif, We'll hear all throughout the movie, and it sets the emotion of the scene perfectly, as usual. A new theme is introduced in the horns as Tootle looks at the replica of Hook's ship in a bottle, which later gets developed into Peter Pan's battle theme. but the music for the scene when Peter, Moira, and Wendy get back to find the kids missing is what really sets the stage for the rest of the movie and its story. Peter sees the broken glass in the front door when they get home, and the battle theme returns as he looks closer. I like the swirling strings to convey danger, as we see the scrapes in the wall left by the captain's hook, who I will point out had his hook on his left hand, but it looks like someone made the marks with the hook on the right hand but this is a kids movie after all and I doubt many if any even noticed and Williams is a master of using the right instruments to convey on-screen action. A perfect example is the shrieking violins for Tinkerbell's arrival to convince Peter to rescue his kids.
0: Ventures a bit into animated cartoon territory, but it's not over the top. A lot of great layers in there underneath the violins.
1: This scene in itself is a bit drawn out with Tink faking her death because Peter said he doesn't believe in fairies. Though in the same scene, she does also mention she recognizes he's the real Peter Pan by the scent of, quote, someone who has ridden the back of the wind. A helpful bridge in the story even for kids who might be wondering how this new character, Tinkerbell, recognizes her friend, even though he's grown up and is unrecognizable compared to the images we see of Peter back when he was still a lost boy. What makes the scene special is that it ends with Tink pulling the literal rug out from under Peter, flipping him over and knocking him partially unconscious, while she wraps him in a blanket, sprinkles him with fairy dust, and follows the famous directions to Neverland second star to the right and straight on till morning. Williams brings out Peter's childhood theme and gives it a grander presence in the orchestra.
0: It's great to hear the main theme getting the Williams' treatment of bouncing around the different orchestra sections. First the woodwinds, then the strings and brass, as we finally see Neverland from above.
1: As great as that moment is musically, it's going to get even better later on, and I can't
0: wait to talk about that. Yes, we'll get to the big, triumphant statement of Peter's theme in just a few minutes. So a little bit after Peter arrives in Neverland, we are introduced to Smee, Captain Hook's right-hand man. And if you thought that was a corny joke about hands, given the fact that Hook's hand was eaten by a crocodile, there are a lot more of them in the film. Our introduction to Smee was quite obviously going to be a song moment, as the music plays a march as Smee delivers a freshly made hook to his captain. While he walks through the town, other pirates perform a march and chant about the hook that Smee is carrying. I think this would have been a great song, but instead it turns into the main theme for Captain James Hook. there's a lot that goes on after this. Peter is unable to rescue his children because he can't fly, his son begins to bond with Captain Hook, and we get our introduction to the Lost Boys. And there's a lot of music that goes on with it. As I said, almost nonstop. But if we could, Derek, I want to pick up our discussion on a moment in the film that is very emotional for me, but even more so with John Williams's music. It happens when Rufio, the new leader of the Lost Boys, has convinced everyone that the adult Peter is not really Peter Pan, except for a kid named Pockets. He caresses Peter's face as a flute melody plays, contorting his skin in different ways until the boy pulls back Peter's cheeks to reveal a big smile. And then, seeing his friend underneath, Pocket says,
2: Oh, there you are, Peter.
0: Williams does his trademark orchestra swell here as the other Lost Boys join in. The kid who played Pockets is Isaiah Robinson, and after watching the movie for this episode, I immediately went to the Internet Movie Database to learn about his other film roles. Turns out, this was his film debut at just 8 years old, and it would be his only film until 2015, that's 24 years later, when he worked on a low-budget independent movie. Robinson decided to become a musician after Hook, and he's made a great career out of it in the Chicago area. I wonder if he had been hired at first when the movie was going to be a musical and there was going to be a song here for Pockets as he examined Peter. That flute melody does lend itself to a song, but then almost every Williams melody is so lyrical that you could put words to them.
1: Yeah, that line from Pockets is one of my favorites, along with, you're doing it, Peter, you're doing it as Peter wins the sort of roast battle with Rufio. The scene starts with Peter watching the Lost Boys eating an imaginary feast, while the track called The Banquet uses a variety of instruments to add a joyful suspense to every imaginary bite they're about to take. We're introduced to William's theme for the Lost Boys, a light march that retains a lot of the childish play in the scene and what is to follow. Then as the boys cheer bangerang as Peter wins the war of words with Rufio, and the eyes of Peter's imagination open, the music transitions into the Neverfeast, a classic John Williams explosion of triumphant orchestration. Instead of using Peter's theme, Williams sticks with the more playful Lost Boys theme as we see the full spread of meats and colorful foods on the table.
0: Just about everybody listening will draw comparisons between this music and the music for the banquet scene in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The score for Hook became a major inspiration for Williams' score for Harry Potter, not only because both deal with magic and children, but because the orchestrations perfectly fit into both scores.
1: After he failed to remember how to fly a few times throughout the movie, the disappointment from watching Jack hit a home run and celebrate with his imposter father, Captain Hook, Peter has more motivation than ever. He finds his way back to the underground treehouse where he lived as a lost boy. This is where he finds his old teddy bear, which helps him bring back enough of his memories that he's able to find his happy thought that he needs to be able to fly. The music during this long scene is the track called Remembering Childhood on the CD release, and it contains multiple musical motifs we've already heard scattered throughout the movie so far. It's the longest track on the soundtrack at 11 minutes, and for me, it perfectly accentuates the emotion of each scene it overlaps during those 11 minutes, just as well as any music Williams has written for any of his movies over the years. Now we'll play the scene starting when a young Peter Pan sees Moira in bed, gives her a real kiss, and decides not to return to Neverland. Once he tells us he's got it, it being his happy thought, the scoring of the scene changes from essentially background music to an explosion of full-on orchestra as Peter flies out through the top of the trees for all the Lost Boys to see and sound the alarm yelling Pans back. The music we heard for Peter's trip to Neverland is combined with the battle music as Peter is now ready for what Captain Hook refers to as the war to end all wars.
0: Let's clear up some confusion before we go on. If you own any of the CD releases of the score, you know there's a track called Flight to Neverland. And then there is also a concert suite from Hook, also called Flight to Neverland, which does not appear on any of the soundtracks to Hook, but can be found on multiple compilation CDs of Williams music. It's this concert suite that I believe most people know well, and it is derived from the music during Peter's first flight. So the concert suite is the track that is inaccurately titled, not the one on the soundtrack score CDs. A better title for that concert suite would have been, well, Peter's First Flight. And speaking of that music, it makes me believe that Robin Williams would have been singing about his rediscovered ability to fly at this point when the story was going to be a musical. I'm not sure how many song moments John Williams and Leslie Bricus originally created for Robin Williams at the start of the project, but this one would have been the great number to showcase Williams' singing ability one year before we got to hear it in Latin. So after almost two hours, we finally get our climactic battle between Peter Pan and Captain Hook. I think it gets a bit over the top and drawn out at times, and I think that just comes from poor fight choreography. For example, Captain Hook has just killed Rufio and stands there sword in hand while Peter cradles Rufio for the boy's last words. Why doesn't Captain Hook lunge at Peter and kill him right there? Doesn't make sense. But I'm nitpicking in a big way here, Derek. I know it's a fantasy and maybe it would have been bad form for Hook to do that. What do you think of the big battle scene?
1: (laughs) If that wouldn't have been bad form, I don't know what would be. And yeah, plenty of this movie requires a suspension of disbelief even beyond what other movies often require, but this being a movie intended for kids, that kind of makes sense, right? As for what I think of the battle scene, it's for sure one of my top three favorite parts of the movie, mostly because of the music. The drums and the use of a tuba are essential to sell the story that this militia of face painted children could overwhelm dozens of sword wielding adult pirates. It's hard to imagine how any one person could dream up a combination of notes and instruments to so perfectly describe musically what we're watching on the screen. There isn't one part of the battle scene score that stands out for me more than the others. It's really just the feeling of the entire piece commenting on the scene that makes it one of my favorites. Let's pick it up in the middle of the sword fight right before Hook overpowers Peter and the Lost Boys say they believe in him. There's a lot of fun stuff in the orchestra with the battle theme and Peter's theme playing back and forth. Williams even puts in a few musical hits along the way. Hook's theme plays at the end there as he pleads for his life before he's swallowed by the crocodile. This music for the big fight scene is really the essence of what has made me a lifelong fan of John Williams. He made the childhood of a lot of us just that much more enjoyable, and made an irreplaceable contribution to the American culture that really
0: sets us apart as a country, and for that I'll always be grateful. I can't say that I count Hook among my favorite scores, but I have a better appreciation of it now. Williams, as I said, would obviously use this score as a template for his Harry Potter music, and for that, I have to be thankful that this score exists. One thing that Williams wanted for this score did not come to fruition. In an interview done around the time of the film's release, Williams said there were plans to make those unused songs available to the public with the companion soundtrack release. It never happened, and I don't know if it will ever happen by now, if it hasn't happened. I wonder if the moderate failure of Hook to capture the same kind of attention that previous Spielberg's films did had something to do with the cancellation of that companion soundtrack release. Now, when I say moderate failure for Hook, it didn't mean that it didn't make money. The movie earned $119 million in North America, which was still a milestone achievement for movies at that time. But it was still Almost half of what his last big-budget film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, made two years earlier, and a third of what E.T., his last movie for kids, made in ticket sales. Critics absolutely hated it, and as I read earlier, Spielberg did not have great things to say about the finished product. Another reason it had problems with the public is the immense popularity of Disney's Beauty and the Beast, which was released three weeks earlier. Despite the critical drubbing, Hook was nominated for five Academy Awards, none of which were for Williams' Underscore. But that didn't mean his music didn't get some recognition. The song When You're Alone got a nomination for Original Song, and it didn't stand a chance of winning that year. For the first time in Oscar history, three songs from one film received Oscar nominations, and all three came from Beauty and the Beast. The score got some life at the Grammy Awards, earning nominations for Best Visual Media Score and Best Pop Instrumental Performance. And both times, Beauty and the Beast got the awards again. So with Hook now in his rearview mirror, Spielberg's belief that he could hold on to his childhood while still being a responsible adult became very prevalent in the choices he made for his next two films, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And right there with them, both times, would be John Williams. And one week after Hook debuted in theaters, another John Williams score gave fans another example of the maestro's ability to write music well for any occasion. And it would be a film that was pretty much the polar opposite of the children's fantasy Hook. It was JFK, the story of one man's attempt to take on the government regarding the Kennedy assassination. The story behind Williams' creation of the score is just as compelling as the score itself, and Brian Martell is going to return to the show to talk with me about that score. Derek, it's been a real pleasure discussing the music for Hook with you. Thank you for taking the time to do so and sharing with us why it's your favorite score.
1: Yeah, And thanks again, Jeff, for giving us all a chance to relive John's career one score at a time.
0: And thanks to everyone who tuned in for this episode. I'm looking forward to the next episode. And until then, the baton is down.